Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't So the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip. Six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brad is out. Look at, look at this. Brad is out. And uh, Damon Mann. I don't want to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business Ever put out in the years Sell the team. Right, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Ned Garver, who of course pitched for many teams, including the St. Louis Browns in the 1950s and up until 1961. Ned, what's going on, buddy? <laughs> Not too much. It's pretty nice here. and My home is in northwest Ohio, and so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying pretty nice weather right now. No, I'm sure you are. And actually, it isn't, you know, we're over in the New York area. It isn't too bad either. It looks like it's starting to warm up here as well. So I think uh, it's time for the dog days of summer. Yeah, well, it's time for it's time for uh, warmer weather, that's for sure. No, no, we're definitely ready for it, man. Now, Ned, of course, you know, you have a 14-year major league career. Um, you know, you're, you're really... Uh, the you know you go go down in history as the last twenty game winner of the St. Louis Browns franchise, and that was of course a team that was really known for not being that uh, that great or very very competitive. They were you know they don't have many championships to really uh, uh, talk about. Just the forty four World Series that pretty much all they were able to accomplish in their history. Tell us a little bit about what your best recollections were for pitching for the St. Louis Browns franchise. Well, you know the St. Louis Browns. First of all, they gave me the opportunity to play professional ball. They signed me. I was I was a farm boy here in Northwest Ohio, and uh, nobody had made much of a fuss over me until they gave me the opportunity to uh, go and and uh, play at uh, the, the lowest classification there was, Class D at Newark, Ohio, and so they gave me the chance to start. So when I got to the big leagues, I mean, I, I had a lot of, I felt a lot of loyalty to that organization because of the fact that they had given me the chance. So now when I got there, I was, I was tickled to death to be in the big leagues because that was every every kid's dream of pitching in the big leagues. So now when I got there, I was just just mighty tickled. But then the fact that I was with a team that was last every year and lost 100 games about every year 
that didn't bother me at that time. Now, when I think about it, I think, well, it would have been a it would have been a break, or it'd have been nice if somewhere along the line I'd have got a chance to to uh, go to a first division team. But I played all my career, all my 14 years with uh, in the in the second division. Now, now as you as you as you go on, you play with those teams, and of course, you know you just talked about playing for the St. Louis Browns. Of course, you ended up pitching for the Detroit Tigers, the Kansas City Athletics, and then your your last year with the uh, Los Angeles Angels. Uh, was there any ever any point where it got frustrating to just be on so many losing teams? I know you never get to a point where you blame anybody else, but it's a you know as a victim of circumstance. Does it did it ever get to a point where it was frustrated while you were playing, or was this all that you thought of pretty much? after you were done pitching. Yeah, I tell you what. I, I never I never worried about that. Yeah, I, I was you know I guess I was taught that uh, you needed to concentrate on your, your own job. You know, and I to pitch in the to pitch every every fourth or fifth day, uh, you had plenty to think about to get ready for your next time for your next uh, starting assignment. And so I, I didn't have time to sit around and uh, feel sorry for myself and things like that. I had plenty to do to get ready to, to pitch the next time I was called on. Yeah, no question. Once again, this is John Pialli with former Major League pitcher Ned Garver. Now, Ned... Um, the 1951 season obviously stands out. You win 20 games for the St. Louis Browns, but not only that, you were you you know you were n- notably a very good hitting pitcher, but um, you also hit 300 that season. Uh, tell us a little bit about you know everything that was going on as things really really went right for you in the 1951 season with the St. Louis Browns. Yeah, the year before, John, to tell you the truth, the year before I had the second lowest earned run average in the American League with a team that we didn't have a star at every position yet. You understand? Yeah. But anyway, uh, so I, I was really, as, but I only won 13 games the year before. But my earned run average was lower in 1950 than it was in 51. But in 51, I, somehow or another, things went extremely well. I mean, my my team scored runs for me. Uh I mean, if I pitched poorly, we just got enough runs to keep me in the ball game. And you mentioned that I was a good hitter, and that kept me in the ball game. You see, they didn't take me out for a pinch hitter because I they used me eleven times as a pinch hitter that year. And so, I sometimes I batted sixth in our lineup because I led the team in hitting uh, at three oh five. So I. The fact that I was a good hitter kept me in the ball games, and then sometimes, you know, you would uh, you would win if you could go nine innings or ten innings. Sometimes you'd score late in the ball game and and uh, and get your win. Yeah, yeah, no question about it. And I tell you, you know, be, being a good hitter certainly did help you, uh, you know, get more complete games. Obviously, 1950 had 22 complete games, 24 and 51. Um, it, you know. L- you, you get to a point where you're, you're talking about, you know, a team like the 1951 Browns. And, you know, like you mentioned, they didn't have a ton of star power. But, but they, they, had a couple, they had a couple decent players. 
but you know, it, it you know, I'm sure it was you know, it was to a point where you just you, you you know, you felt like you wanted to really pitch your best because I'm sure you knew runs were probably going to be hard to come by. Yeah, but you know, our team, I really think that our team, my teammates thought the days I pitched, they thought that we all, that we had a chance to win, that I would pitch good enough to have a chance to win. And I think that they thought that if they get a few runs, that the, that, that we would have a, a good day because we would have maybe win the game. And so it turned out that that's the way it was. But I think... I think their attitude was probably a little better <laughs> on the days that I pitched rather than the other days because they thought we had a better chance to win. Yeah, no question about it. Now, on that, on that 51 team, you got a chance to pitch with a, a guy by the name of Satchel Page. Uh, tell, tell, us, oh, tell us a little bit about, you know, having, having him as a teammate and what it was like to see him. I understand that, you know, he, he was still pretty good at age 44 in 1951. But, uh, you know, may, maybe we, we kind of missed the chance to really see him about 10 years earlier. Yeah, I saw him. I saw him uh, when he was touring around and pitching exhibition against Dizzy Dean. Now, that was quite a few years before that. And he was, oh man, he was just super good. But then, when he got to, to the big leagues, he was still good. And when he was with us, now, now I got to know Satchel real well, and Satchel and I went, we barnstormed. He took a, he took a, a team of Negro players, and I took a, a team of major league players, and we, we toured starting out in, Pueblo and Colorado Springs and Denver and places like that that did where where we didn't have pro ball yet. I mean major league ball. So so we would we, we did that two years in a row and I became real good friends with Satchel Page. And so when we were together as teammates, we would we would uh, ride together in the compartments and uh, we spent a lot of time together. And he was he was a just a he was just the the best pitcher. He threw more pitches and pitched in more games than anybody that ever lived. And he was just a fabulously knowledgeable pitcher. And he was still good too. But he was extremely knowledgeable. And so that was why I liked to spend time with him. Yeah, very much. And I mean, he, you know, obviously, Satchel Page is known for essentially being able to throw the ball wherever he wanted to. With his fastball, he could locate the corners. He wanted to hit the inside corner. He, you know, he could get it within like an inch or so. I mean, that was a, certainly a, uh, a a talent that. Listen, even even some of the best pitchers were were unable to do. Yeah, and he also he had he had all his pitches named. <laughs> you know, he had his trouble ball, and he had all kinds of names for his pitches but he had a lot of different kind of pitches and he could he could pitch from any position he could throw from from low side arm he could throw from up on top and he had this hesitation pitch and he and of course hitting his timing and pitching is to breaking up the timing and satchel knew that and he would be he had all kinds of ways to break up the the timing of the hitter and on top of that, like you said, he had pinpoint control. 
Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Ned Garver. Now, also in 1951, you get a chance to start that All-Star game. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience and, you know, maybe maybe get into a little bit about how much more the All-Star game meant to the players playing than it does now. Well, now it's kind of a show, and, and I don't really enjoy watching it much. But uh, because it's that way. But when we played, I mean, back when I was playing there and got selected to pitch, <clears throat> We played to win the game, you know. It hadn't been very many years before that that a guy like Lefty Gomez, um, he might go six or seven innings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they put, they, they put the very best player you had out there, pitcher you had out there, and let him go in, in, in an effort to win the game. Well, now I only pitched three innings, and that was about the what they were doing at that time. But it was very important to everybody that we that we win the game, and so that 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 was wonderful. I I just I I, I was I was pleased to, as punch to be selected in the first place, but then Casey allowed me to be the starting pitcher. Well, now to be on the team is one thing, but to get to start the game is something else. So I got to I got to start the game and and I got. Well, I pitched three innings, and uh, Richie Ashburn got it. He was the first hitter, and he got a base hit. But that was that was the only hit they got. So, so I I, I enjoyed that thing. I got to, I I can remember that that I got Alvin Dark out as the second hitter, and then I didn't I didn't want to pitch the usual, so I walked him. But then I got Jackie Robinson to pop up. And I, then I think they struck out the next guy, so I I got out of the inning pretty good. But it was uh, <laughs> I've got a baseball with all the all the players on both teams listed there, and when I look at that, I say, "Holy cow! There were some pretty good ball players there." Oh, no question about it. And I tell you, it must have, it must have been something. I mean, you know, you, 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 you live the dream. You get to the major leagues. You have a lot of success, of course. But, you know, you get into a place like the All-Star game. And I'll tell you, what, you know, you look at the way the All-Star game has kind of been watered down now, the way, uh, you know, it just seems like nobody really cares about it from the players, the people putting it together, and the fans. You didn't, you didn't need any motivation back then to play in the All-Star game. Like you said, you played the game to win. Um, you know, it's a, it's amazing how things have changed to a point where they have to add all these extra things to give the players that are in the game motivation to number one play and number two to play to win. Yeah, but they, what do you think of the, what do you think of them, a lot of them shaking out? I mean, they come along and then they got all kinds of excuses as to why they, maybe they've been selected to play, but they, they don't want to go. Maybe they want to go to down the Ozarks or something, or go fishing or something. I don't know, but anyway, they 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 don't show up, and I I can't I, I that just irritates the devil out of me. And then and then of course once once they get there, the manager, about all his job is is to see that everybody gets to play. Yes, you know he got to work out so that everybody gets in there. Well, crap, it. That, that, that's not in the best interest of winning the game. 
But yet, what the, the team that w- the wins that game is going to be the, the have home advantage in in the World Series. So I would think that it would be plenty incentive, but it just doesn't seem to be. Now it's amazing, and I'll tell you, you know, you look about, let's say, you know, in the 1950s when when you pitched, could you imagine somebody being selected for the All Star game and then telling, uh, you know, telling you that that they didn't want to play in a game or giving any excuse that, for that matter, for not playing in a game? No, no. I always tell, my, I always told my family, I said, boy, if I get selected for the All Star game, I would buy a ticket and sit in the sit in the center field bleachers. Just, just to be there, you know, and that that was that was recognized as a terrific honor. And I mean, it, it just seems to be, seems to me like it's just unbelievable to me that the the attitude the player has. But but I don't I I can't relate to the fact that these players all are fabulously rich, you know, at least most all of them, and they've got so much money. That they they can do, I guess they feel like they can do just anything they want to. Nah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Piello, former major league pitcher Ned Garver. Now you know you you end up you know after after the Browns you end up getting traded to the Detroit Tigers and uh, you know what what was very common at that time the mega player trade. I believe it was three what about eight players involved in the trade between uh, St. Louis and uh, Detroit involves, uh, you know, Dick Wirtz and, uh, you know, amongst other players. Tell us a little bit about being traded, first of all, and then your experience with the Detroit Tigers. Well, as a kid, I was a Detroit Tiger fan. And in our, in our household there, on the farm, I had two brothers and my dad, and we were all St. Louis, I mean, all Detroit Tiger fans because once about every two or three years, we could uh, milk the cows early and, and and go up to Detroit and watch a doubleheader. So that was a big treat to us uh, to get to see that ballpark and, and to see that see a major league game. So I was a Detroit Tiger fan, and so to go to Detroit, that was that was all right with me, I guess. Although initially, initially I felt kind of kind of down because it made me think that uh, that the Browns didn't want me. And of course that wasn't exactly what right because the Browns, uh, Bill Beck thought that he he needed a hitter like like Vic Wirtz and that Vic would be exactly right in our in, uh, in, in St. Louis where they have a short right field. So anyway uh, I, I wasn't I wasn't Pleased to get traded by the, from the Browns, but if I was going to go any place, uh, Detroit was all right with me because now uh, my my people, my fa- my family, they could come up to Detroit once in a while and see me play. Yeah, no question about it. And I tell you, you mentioned uh, Bill Veck. Um, tell us a little bit about your your interaction or your opinion about having a guy like Bill Veck as an owner. Obviously, he was known for many different things that he did, but was, in my opinion, a good owner. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, having a guy like uh, like Bill Veck, you know, kind of watch over your franchise. Oh man, that was a, that was I the good lord. Then I got to play for Bill Veck. He was 
he was he was one of definitely he was definitely one of a kind. Satchel Page was one of a kind, and this guy Bill Vick was one of a kind. And that guy, I mean, I mean, he had something going all the time. He had more good sound promotional ideas in ten minutes than most of those people had in their lifetime. <laughs> and so he did all kinds of things to promote the game. He had a team there that wasn't going to, wasn't winning a lot of games, that wasn't going to go any place. So he had, he had ideas then to, to promote, to get the fans to want to come. And so he did, oh gosh, he, he, one of the, of course, the greatest thing, uh, I'm 80, 87 years old and I make a lot of, a lot of talks yet. And when I do, there never do I have an occasion to make a talk, but what somebody asks about the midget. <laughs> and so I pitched the first game of the doubleheader uh, when the midget was used in the second game. And, but that was in 1951, and they're, they're still talking about that in 2013. And he, but he did things like one day they were talking about, well, Garver was going to get going to get traded to the Yankees or sold to the Red Sox or something like that. So he 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 just called a, he he said they were going to have a press conference after this game after this certain game, and so. He told me to be up there at his offices in the third deck of the ballpark. And when he got up there, all these newspaper people were there, you know, expecting some announcement about my being traded. And here all he announced was that Garver was going to pitch the first game on Friday. (laughs) I mean, that was, (laughs) to, to me, that was entertaining. But I, I don't think there was so people. I don't think those newspaper guys thought it was such a big joke. But anyway, I, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of funny. And I tell you, now that you do mention uh, Midget, we have to talk about it a little bit. Um, was was that looked upon by the players that played on that team and in that game uh, as much of a mockery as it really seemed from the, from the outsider to see somebody that's you know that short come up to the plate, obviously you know overmatched, and you know certainly something that a lot of people thought really didn't belong in the game of baseball. Uh, did the players kind of feel that way as well? No, I, no. Well, I guess one reason was. And everybody, everybody liked playing for Bill Vick. Everybody was was thrilled at the way he went about being a, an owner. And if you played for him, he made you feel like you were ten feet tall, even though you weren't. You see, but but anyway, he uh, we everybody nobody knew what was going to happen. Nobody knew what was going to go on. And when they brought that old wagon up out there with this thing in there that looked like probably some scantily clad girl was going to get out of there, <laughs> here finally he got there for the dugout, and the midget got out. He crawled out and got, went down and then went over to the dugout, and everybody thought that was all there was going to be to it until the game started. <laughs> And then you see, he had done every, he done his homework. He had a contract there that was signed by Will Harris. He had gotten Will Harris, the president of the league, 
to sign a contract showing that that Eddie Goodell was now a member of the St. Louis Browns. And as a member of the St. Louis Browns, it was completely legitimate for him to go to bat. And so after we had gone out in the field to start the second game, we put Frank Sauchet, a reserve guy, playing center field, and he had batted him first, leadoff. And after we got the Detroit Tigers out, we came to bat. And then instead of Frank Sauchet going up to bat, here the midget went up there. <laughs> and of course, uh, Hurley, the umpire, he didn't like it. And and Red Rolfe, the manager of the Tigers, they he, he come out there, he was all upset. Well, the, the, manager, the, the umpire couldn't do anything about it because there they had his that contract signed by Will Harris, and so he had to let him hit. So he finally they let him get up there, and of course Bill Beck had told him he wasn't to swing no matter what. He was just supposed to stand there and get a base on balls. So he stood there, and Bob Kane was the pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, and he came up halfway. And he was going to toss it to him underhanded. But the, the umpire made him go back and pitch normally. And Bob Swift, the catcher, got down on all fours and tried to give a target right there for it would be a strike. But, of course, the, the first four pitches were all balls. So he was advanced to first base. And then our regular center fielder, Jim Delsing, was sent down to pinch run for for uh, the midget, and then uh, he was out of the ball game. So really, that didn't make a farce of the game. But I mean, he put we put one guy on base. The first guy of the game, we put him on base. I pitched in ball games already when the first guy hit a home run. <laughs> and I remember we played in Cleveland one day, and Cliff Fennon was pitching for us, and the first two guys hit home runs. And the next guy hit a double off the fence. Now they had two runs in and a man on second. And that's all they got. Fannin got them the rest of the way. But nevertheless, they were behind, we were behind first two guys up. We were behind two runs. Here we played one batter and put him on first base. That didn't win the game. No, no, it absolutely didn't. Once again, this is John Piel. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Ned Garver. Now, Ned, in uh, in 1951, you wrote a letter to MLB officials and offered a pay plan that would uh, uh, that would kind of maybe challenge the reserve system, and you know, that, you know, you supported it, but you were you know were maybe offering a better uh, a better system, uh, you know, for for uh, for players and stuff like that. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and what the reasons were behind it and what you uh, you know what you were looking to accomplish. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I didn't like it because they weren't proposing any adequate substitute for the reserve calls. Now, I said, if everybody decides they want to go to one team, you're going to have an imbalance. And that's exactly what's happened. You've got players, players oh, I want to go to the only certain teams. You can only trade me to certain teams. Okay. Then everybody gets to get the best team. It's just like that team in Florida now, the basketball team. They get all the good ones down there. They're going to beat everybody. 
Exactly. Well, then, then, then we got now 30 or so teams in the big leagues. When the season starts, there's only a, a handful of teams that have any chance of winning the thing in the first place. You, you can't kid your fans. They know that you whether you got a reasonable chance or not. So you've got too many. You got an imbalance of, of, of the good players in, on one team, on on a few teams. And so I, what I proposed was that if you didn't, if a player did not get an opportunity to play a reasonable amount of time. Just like when Yogi, if you were a catcher and came up to the Yankees when Yogi Berra was catching, he would catch about every game of the season. And if you came up there as a good, promising catcher and you sat there about three years and didn't get to play hardly any, the chances are your 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 abilities would would diminish, and then pretty soon you wouldn't be able to play. So I said, if you can't, if you don't play, a, get, if they don't allow you to play a reasonable amount of time, can it, then they've got to either trade you or sell you. And so I thought I, I wrote that to the Quayar or Clutter or whatever his name was. I think that in in Washington, he wanted me. He wanted my opinion. And so I, I put it down in the letter and sent it to him. And I, I, I really think that, uh, oh, they'd have to polish that up some and stuff like that and, and come up with reasonable figures. But really, it, that, that way, it, you'd either get a chance to play or else, or else you'd get to go to another team. No, very true. I mean, listen, it all made sense. And, you know, unfortunately, the, uh, the reserve clause was something that was kept in the game for for many years until the 19, uh, you know, late 1960s, early 1970s. And now, you know, you've seen it, you know, kind of go the other way where the players are, you know, paid a lot more money than they really should be. And not just the value of the dollar, but, you know, the amount of money that they're getting paid really isn't equivalent to the value that they're giving to the team and the league. Oh goodness, it's sickening, really. I, I tell you, it's really, it's really kind of embarrassing because there's, in this country, how many people can relate to that kind of a deal? You know, those the major league players. I mean, some of those, some of those people only play. They're they're just complete specialists. They only play just a little bit and yet they get they demand big salary and then now their retirement plan if, if they play 10 years and they're 60 years old they're going to get $195,000 yeah well, unbelievable crying out loud I'm, I played 14 years and in my plan I don't I, I don't get a fourth of that and so I just it just kind of kind of irritates me that the way the way it's gone, but then money, like they say, money drives everything. And of course, uh, I can't I can't fault people for for getting as much money as they can. But then that's uh, if I if I had a if I had a suggestion, I'd make a suggestion that they don't announce how much the players are going to get paid because I think that. 
And boy, oh boy, when I make my talks, uh, so many, many people tell me that, that 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 just turns them off. And then they know how much these, these, these sometimes the substitute players, not the stars, but the substitute players, how much, how many millions of dollars they're getting paid. And they, they, they said, well, I used to, used to follow baseball real close, but that since they've gone to that so much, so much money, it's kind of turned me off. So I don't like to hear that. No, I understand too, man. But uh, and and obviously this might this might not go over that well. But do you think they you guys the old the old timers that, that that had to play with the reserve clause and everything that went on in all those years where the players um, certainly didn't got certainly got the short end of the stick. Uh, you know, essentially you guys uh, you guys took it for what the players are getting now, and you know, unfortunately it's an unfair balance that you guys you guys really should have been compensated for everything that you guys tried to do to uh to number one challenge the reserve clause and make things fairer for the players and now you know the players that are playing now are the ones that reap the benefits of it yeah that's right and then but <laughs> but i think maybe the primary thing to me is see there wasn't any money back in 1946 47 48 but when we my first book that I, we paid, they took $2 a day out of our, the player's check. I, I, all, our, all the players had to pay $2 a day to get that program started. And if we hadn't got that thing started, they wouldn't have it. You understand? So I think they ought to be appreciative of the fact that we were willing to do that to get it started. Now, the, my first book that shows the benefits that, that you get shows that if if we played 10 years when we were 65 years old we were going to get $50 a day. I mean $50 a month. Pension. So now $50 a month and now these guys are getting $195,000 a year. That's that, unbelievable. I, I, I don't sound I don't sound too good. No, it certainly doesn't. Listen, Nat, I want to thank you for having some time today. A lot of great stuff, man. I appreciate speaking with you. And listen, man, hopefully uh, I can get you on sometime in the near future. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. Uh, Take care. You bet, John. Bye-bye. That, that, of course, was Ned Garver, and Ned pitched from 1947 to 1961 with the St. Louis Browns, Detroit Tigers, Kansas City Athletics, and uh, Los Angeles Angels. we got to take our first break, though. This is the Passball Show, of course, right here on the MTR Radio Network. Uh, back after this. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call, 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. 
listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTRmedia.com. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hope you guys enjoyed your, the, the little discussion there with Ned Garver, of course, former pitcher for the St. Louis Browns and Detroit Tigers, the last 20-game r- winner for the Browns, starter of the 1951 All-Star Game, amongst a lot of other things. So, you know, great stuff to talk about, and hopefully uh, you guys enjoyed that little spot there. Do got some other things going on, a couple more interviews we're going to be getting up into today. But we're going to start out, I'm going to get into something that's kind of bothering me, and that's the perception that baseball fans have in general when things don't go well for their team once the season becomes a complete loss once it becomes an utter failure that there's no way that the team's going to be able to get out of the hole that they're in and it's on to next season fans always do this they insist on wanting to see younger players and listen the, the whole premise of it the whole thing about it sounds good you got a veteran team that stinks you want to get younger that whole thing makes a lot of sense but not to the point that fans make it out to be. Essentially, fans just think that you put a group of 20 to 22-year-olds or 22 to 24-year-old players out there, and all of a sudden you're going to be better because every player that age has got to be good. And if they're not good now, they're going to be good in the future. To me, it's a bunch of crap. I mean, people overrate this. They think all the time that all you have to do is just go to your minor leagues and play players that are 22 to 24 years old, and all of a sudden, the present and the future is just going to get better. Case in point, the New York Mets of this season. Let's be honest, they, they don't have any talent in their outfield. And, you know, you hear people, whether it's Twitter or whether it's people just uh, venting out some frustration are calling out guys like Rick Ankeel and Marlon Byrd and saying, listen, this team could lose 90 to 100 games this year. Why do fans have to go out there and see Rick Ankeel and Marlon Byrd? Well, I, I propose this question. What are the other options? Because it's not like the Mets have a group of outfield prospects that are right on the precipice of becoming major leaguers because it's not true. The younger players that, that, that would be playing right now uh, honestly don't belong in the major leagues. I mean, is, that, is anybody excited about Juan Lagares? The guy's hit about 150. He's not a major league hitter. Yes, he could catch a ball, but he's not a guy that you're going to look to in the future to be a regular major league outfielder. Same thing with Kirk Newenheist. That's why he's down in AAA. Colin Calgill, hey, I would take him over Lagares, but, but at the same time, Colin Calgill is not going to be the Mets center fielder over the next five seasons. So in my opinion, the, the getting younger thing doesn't apply to the New York Mets outfield. You know, you look, you're looking at guys that aren't major league players. And to be honest, I don't care if the guy's 33 or 40. If they can hit better than the other options that the Mets have for outfielders, I would want to see him out there. And yes, Rick Ankeel is not a major league starting outfielder. Let's be honest, we've known that for the last several years. We've known that since he made that comeback with the St. Louis Cardinals as a hitter after having some success as a pitcher and having the arm problems and the inability to throw strikes. But... Rick Ankeel is as good 
as the other options that the Mets have right now. And that's why he is getting a good amount of time and a chance to play in center field for the Mets. That, that's, that's the truth. Marlon Byrd is hitting 250, six homers, 25 runs batted in. It's, it's up there, not only with uh, amongst the best production for outfielders in regards to the New York Mets, but he's up there with a lot of, a lot of everyday outfielders. So Marlon Byrd should be out there, whether he's 35 years old or not. I don't want to see Juan Lagares. I don't want to see Kirk Neuenheis. You've heard some discussion, and we'll get on into this in the next hour when we speak to Rich Catino, that the Mets are pursuing a major outfield addition. Now, if they're able to do that, obviously, this whole discussion I'm having about playing younger players goes for naught. But I, I don't do this very often. Uh, my base is empty blog, johnpielli.com. Of course, I promote the hell out of it. But uh, I, I thought that I really kind of got passionate and deep into the article that I wrote yesterday. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read it for you. This is about maybe four or five paragraphs, so get it right out of the way. And, uh, you know, this is essentially what I feel in regards to playing young players because they are young. And the title of the article is Play the Quote-Unquote Young Players because Just Because of Their Age. And here, here's what I wrote. It is not a new phenomenon that once a team proves it is overmatched in regards to the competition of their respective league, fans make the suggestion, play the kids. It sounds good on paper and gives fans a fuzzy feeling that the future could be better than the present. However, it becomes a little more complicated when the only advantage the younger players have is their age. Yes, in regards to the New York Mets, younger players like Matt Harvey, Zach Wheeler, and Travis Darnot either are contributing this season or will will in the short-term future. And it is also obvious how panic has already set in with fans who want to get their hopes up as high as possible for this so-called future. The issue I have the issue I have seen is the fact that some fans refuse to look at the full potential of a young player. Case in point, the Mets outfield. Fans are up in arms over the fact that journeyman players such as Rick Ankiel and Marlon Byrd are getting at bats. They would rather see players such as Juan Lagares, Kirk Neuenheis, and Colin Calgill. And, and, though, and through an intense session of questioning, I bet... I could get them to admit that the sole reason they want to see the second group of players over the first is the second group is 24, 25, and 27, and the first two are 33 and 35. There is some logic to this argument, though. It makes perfect sense to want to see younger players on a team that is rebuilding. After all, if a team becomes competitive over the next two, three seasons, odds are players who would then be 36 and 38 will probably not be around anymore. But I'm not sure the other three will be around as well. So if that's the case, then why? what are they being showcased for? To me, it does not take much to see what Juan Lagares is. He could catch the ball, but, that, but clearly has weaknesses in his swing and approach. He's also at the MLB level simply because the Mets do not have better options. Kirk Neuenheis will never be a steady major leaguer, as, as he, it seems he will never be able to cut down on his strikeouts. Calgill maybe should be up here instead of Lagares, but is, going, is not going to be the Mets center fielder of the future. The, the Mets' better, better set of outfield prospects are either injured or a year or two away from the majors. Matt Decker is yet to play in a game this season due to injury. Cesar Puello, Corey Vaughn are in double-A, and Brandon Nimmo is in low-A Savannah. If I had a choice, I'd rather see Decker, Puello, Vaughn, and Nimmo than any of the other outfielders that I've just talked about. Maybe you're asking, what's your point? 
in 2003, the Mets signed Ray Sanchez to play shortstop. After the season became a failure, it was time to play Jose Reyes, the Mets shortstop of the future. The same thing in 2004, with the Mets starting the season with Ty Wigginton at third base, then letting the kid, David Wright, play there after there was little to play for. The Mets did the same thing in 2010 with Ruben Tejada, playing him at second base regularly and sitting Luis Castillo. The only thing Ligaris, Neuenheis, and Calgill have on their side, like I said, is their age. None, of the, none are prospects. None would be platoon outfielders on more than two other MLB teams. So why should the Mets play them here? Marlon Byrd, like I said, is batting 256 homers, 25 RBIs, which is respectable. And fans quickly forget why Ankiel is here. Ankiel was signed because the other options are really that bad. It is easy to forget that Ankiel is nothing more than what he has always been. He'll hit a couple home runs, play defense, strike out a ton, and hit for a low average. He has done this his entire career as a hitter. I'm not an Ankiel apologist, but I know what he is. I also know he is no better or worse than Ligaris or Neuenheis. To me, playing any one of these three is the same. Any thought that Ligaris and Neuenheis will be better just because they are young is silly. They are what they are. The Mets' future will not be any brighter with any of those three in the outfield. Based on competitive balance, it's safe to say the Mets will probably have two outfielders on their team next season that currently play for other organizations. When, when Reyes was up, it was understood he would get a chance to earn his keep. The Mets will be shopping for outfielders no matter who is out there now. Ideally, it would be great for Sandy Alderson to make a trade for an impact bat this season, but until that happens, the Mets are running out six of one and half a dozen of the other. And that was my article, JohnPielli.com. Check that out on my website. Also, MTRmedia.com slash JohnPielli, where you got all my articles, all my shows, all my interviews, the whole thing. But, you know, that, that's my point. And I, I'm just tired of people going out there and over overanalyzing players just because of their age, just because they're young. To, to me, it doesn't do anything. To me, age only matters if there's talent to back it up. And I disagree wholeheartedly with people that say, listen, I'd rather see a group of 22-year-old kids out there than, than anybody over the age of 30 on a team that stinks. Because let's be honest, if and when the Mets turn it around, whether it's in a couple of years or whether it's in 25 years, they're going to turn it around with a mixture of young players and veterans. Not all a group of young players going into the prime at the same time. And let's be honest, you know, the credit that the New York Yankees organization gets for developing the young players that they did, the Jeters, the Riveras, the Andy Pettits, the Posadas, all those players, the Yankees would not have won a World Series championship if it wasn't for the veterans that were on that team. Not just Paul O'Neill, but, you know, guys like Wade Boggs and Charlie Hayes and Jimmy Key. Veteran players, John Wetland, that were on that team that mixed with the younger players that were coming up to make that team what it was. And anybody that says that you're just going to build a solid organization with a whole group of kids is, is out of their mind. Because the Mets right now, if you look at what they're running out there in their outfield, the younger options that they got now are the perfect example of how it doesn't matter how old or young you are. You could still stink. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. you got to jump into another break. MTR Radio is already your home for the best sports talk in New York and Philly. Coming soon, the next leap in the evolution of Internet radio will have you tuning in all day, every day. 
Close out your workday with Sean Bretherick and Dan Feuerstein from 3 to 5 p.m. Then when your teams are done for the day, David Dobin will be there to recap all the action from 10 to midnight. It all starts Monday, May 6th on MTR Radio, America's radio station. You're listening to MTR Radio. Welcome back, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. John Pielli finishing up the first hour. Like I said, I want to thank Ned Garver for being part of the program. And we're going to switch gears, getting a little history. Uh, something I got into yesterday, guy, a, a very good power hitter in the National League by the name of Johnny Mize, was uh, well known for, for what he did in his years with St. Louis. And then, of course, after he was traded to the New York Giants, another guy that served in the war of uh, World War II, missed about four full seasons, and then finished his career, his last five years, with the New York Yankees. And Johnny Mize, a, a very, very good hitter, a Hall of Famer. No question about it. Ends up being inducted in the Hall of Fame within a reasonable amount of time after he retired. But here was a guy that started his career as really one of the great hitters of his time. He, he, was, he, he was a guy that drove in 100 runs every year, 93 RBIs in 126 games in his first season, and you know was really one of the top power hitters in the National League. The only problem with St. Louis was the fact that he played first base because there was a guy by the name of Stan Musial who was 20 years old in uh, 19, what was it, 1941. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 1941, the last season that uh, when Stan Musial came up at age 20. And the Cardinals knew that they were in for greatness. This was a guy that was going to be around. He was going to be a top player. He was going to be a guy that they could revolve the team around. And he was just 20 years old. So Johnny Mize was traded, of course, to the New York Giants, where he had a, a couple more solid seasons, led the NL in RBIs and slugging well, with, you know, with the Giants in 1942. And, of course, he joins the Navy, did not play baseball again until the 1946 season. That didn't stop him. He just played 100. He did play 101 games his first year back in 46, hit 337. But 47 and 48, he was as good of a power hitter as he was before. 47, he hit 302, 51 homers, 138 RBIs, leading the league in homers, RBIs, and runs scored. He backed that up with a 289 season with 40 and 125 in 1948. Mize kind of dropped a little bit in the 1949 season. He had just 263, 18 homers, 62 RBIs, 106 games, and was sold to the New York Yankees right before the season ended. And the Yankees, you know, really wanted to, you know, were, were run at the time by new manager Casey Stengel, of course, just took over the team in 1949, uh, re- replacing Bucky Harris, who was fired after the 1948 season. Now, Stengel was a big advocate of the platoon. He liked the fact that there's left-hand hitters and right-hand hitters, and he could bat the lefties against right-hand pitching and the left and the righties against left-hand pitching, and that's where Johnny Mize kind of fit in. Mize was a, a very good power hitter. 
kind of platoon for the Yankees towards the end of the 1949 season. And, of course, we all remember what happened in 1949. The, the Yankees, of course, were playing against the, the, the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers, the Mickey Owen pass ball, the whole thing. They end up winning that series. But was a very was a very good option off the bench. Mize, for the first time in his career, was not playing every day, but he took to the role of being a role player, getting hits in both of his at-bats in the World Series, driving in two runs, and helping the Yankees beat the Brooklyn Dodgers in five games. Mize, of course, rebounded with a solid 1950 season, in spite of only playing nine games. He still hit 25 homers and drive in, drove in 72 runs and started all four games of the 1950 sweep over to Philadelphia Phillies. But he started to kind of drop a little bit, you know, not becoming the premier power hitter that he was. He hit just 10 home runs in 1951. But, and it played in four of the six games you know, as a, as a role player against the Giants, his former team. However, he, 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 in 1952 against the Brooklyn Dodgers, he, he dropped even worse. Just four home runs that season, two, 263 average, but he played a huge role in the series against the Brooklyn Dodgers. He, he played five out of seven games. He was six for 15, 400 average with three homers and six RBIs, leading the Yankees to their fourth straight World Series. Now, at age 40, he played one more season in 1953. What did the Yankees do? They won the World Series again. He got three more at-bats. Obviously, the war affected Mize like it did a lot of other players. He was able to play a very good role on Casey Stengel's team. And, you know, of course, you know, Johnny Mize really kind of shows how it is. Not only could be a war hero by going out there and serving your country, but be a top player and take a tertiary role on a team that is winning championships like the New York Yankees were from, of course, really from the better part of 1936 to 1964. Let's be honest, in 26 years, the team was in 21 World Series. I'm sorry, 29 seasons. They were in 21 World Series, winning 16 of them. So obviously a good time to be on the Yankees from 1936 to 1954. And Johnny Mize was able to take advantage being part of the Yankees from 1949 to 1953, where the Yankees did nothing but win World Series. Let's be honest, you go back before that, you know, there, there, was, there was some situations where he just, you know, he, he didn't play for the best of teams. And if, you, and if you look really the Cardinals of the 30s, remember they won World Series in, uh, in what was it, 26-32 and 34 and then of course again in 42 44 and 46 you know the cardinals were really the yankees or the best uh, comparison to the yankees of the national league at that time and mize had a chance of course to play for both of them but didn't play in any world series with the st louis cardinals he played in five world series won five world series in the last five seasons of his career all played for the new york yankees so, great first hour. Like I said, I want to thank Ned Garver for being part of the program. Uh, hour number two coming up. So, a lot more stuff going on. Passball Show and TR Radio Network. 